Matthew chapter 17, we pick it up in verse 14. Then Matthew writes, and when they had come to the multitude, now this is a reference here, Jesus, he's come down from the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. And he writes, when they had come uh, to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic and suffers severely. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. For surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not come out, uh, go out except by prayer and fasting. Well, I don't know about you guys. I mean, for me at least, it seems like forever since we've been together in the study of uh, Matthew's gospel. This is the fifth Sunday since I came down with a touch of the COVID. And uh, I was told last week I looked pretty rough. <laughs> this week I was told I'm looking better. But I am feeling much better every day. I'm getting more and more to a normal thing. But I want to thank you for your, your guys' prayers. Thank you. They mean so much to me and Tina and our family. If you're visiting with us this morning, um, you know, we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, <clears throat> seeking to learn all that we can about our Savior, Jesus Christ. And not only do we desire to learn all that we can regarding him, but we want the word of God to wash over us and do the work of fashioning us into the image of Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> I mean, we're so thankful for the word of God and the work that it accomplishes in our lives as we look to it, as we turn to it, as we seek to apply it to our lives. Um, well, in this passage that we're looking at this morning, Jesus teaches us about a faith that has the power to move mountains. And again, what we see in this passage is that Jesus has just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. And while they were up there on that Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus was transfigured in such a way that his pre-incarnate glory his divine glory, uh, which he's had from all eternity past. I mean, Jesus's eternal glory uh, began to shine through his humanity. And it was at that moment that Peter, James, and John, they got a glimpse, they got a preview of what heaven uh, actually looks like. And it's interesting to me that none of us live continually on the mountaintop. I mean, we all, I'm pretty sure, have had mountaintop experiences. And uh, we take those mountaintop experiences, the things that we've learned on the mountaintop, and we bring them down and apply them uh, to the things we encounter here in the valleys, right? Uh, we use uh, the things we learn on the mountaintops to help us to navigate this fallen world. Well, as Jesus returns to the base of the mountain with Peter, James, and John. They return to the place where uh, they left, or at least the other nine disciples are. And while they, uh, when they make it to the bottom of the mountain, right, they're immediately confronted with a very serious case of uh, demonic uh, possession. It says in verse 14, and when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic. And he suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. Luke's gospel tells us that this boy is the only son of this man. 
Mark's gospel tells us that part of that multitude that was surrounding the other nine disciples, the multitude that met Jesus when he came down from that mountaintop, that multitude included scribes which were disputing with the disciples of Jesus. And verse 19 tells us that the disciples of Jesus made at least one attempt to cast out the demon from this boy, and it was uh, unsuccessful. And it would appear, <clears throat> excuse me, that the uh, dispute was over their failure to cast out this demon. I mean, the religious leaders never saw failure in Jesus's life. And uh, were probably taken aback a little bit when they saw, you know, uh, when they witnessed in the failure in the lives and the ministry of the disciples here at this moment. So probably what's going on here is the disciples try to cast out the demon out of this boy. And uh, the, for the first time, the religious leaders of the day see a lack of success in the ministry of Jesus's disciples. And we can't forget, we have to keep this in the back of our mind as we continue through the book. The religious leaders are very hostile towards Jesus at this time. I mean, they're actively planning his demise. They're seeking to put him to death. So they grab hold of this event and they're going to ride it for all it's worth. And what they're saying, in essence, is they're saying Jesus claims to be the son of God. How is that even possible if his disciples can't even cast out this demon from this boy? They can't find any fault with Jesus, so they do the next best thing. And people still do this today. What do they do? They look for fault in the followers of Jesus, right? They're thinking to themselves, if we can't find fault in Jesus, let's find a reason to reject him through finding some fault or failure in his followers. And again, that happens today. So the scribes here, what they're trying to do is they're trying to discredit Jesus through the failure of the disciples. Now, again, it's interesting to me that this failure was unnecessary. Just like uh, in a similar way, you know, failure is unnecessary in our lives as we seek to follow, as we seek to know the Lord. Verse 14 Again, when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, so as soon as this man sees Jesus coming down from the mountain, he runs over to Jesus and he, and he falls down on his face and he says, verse 15, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic uh, and suffers severely. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. We want to notice that the father describes his son as an epileptic. Epilepsy is his physical condition, right? His physical condition of epilepsy is exacerbated by his spiritual condition, which is demon possession. And these two things are completely different. I mean, uh, you know, people who are diagnosed with epilepsy are not by default demon possessed. We have to understand that, right? Uh, this boy has a physical condition that's made worse by a spiritual condition. And as the father describes the condition of his son, Luke's gospel tells us that uh, he was continually bruised by this demon. And here in Matthew, we read that this demon is casting the boy into the fire, right? He's casting him into the water in an effort to destroy this kid. I mean, the demon is using epilepsy to make the life of this, this boy just indescribably, incredibly uh, difficult. And as any parent can understand, man, just witnessing all of this just makes it unbearable for this kid's parents. Well, we also want to notice that the father repeats the word often in verse 15, right? Falling into the fire and falling into the water isn't something that happened once in a while. It happened often. It was always happening. The demon is actively trying to destroy this kid, or at the very least, trying to make his life a living hell. And when the father comes and kneels down before Jesus, he gives Jesus just this brief account of things that have happened up to this point. 
He says, verse 16, I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. And what he's basically saying is, I brought my son to your disciples, and they were completely powerless to change either his physical or his spiritual condition. And in verse 17 and 18, we have Jesus's response to the situation. In verse 17, we have Jesus's verbal response. It says, then Jesus answered and said, oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And in verse 18, we have Jesus's physical response to needs of the father and the son. Uh, it says, and Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. And Mark's gospel adds that Jesus commanded the demon to enter him no more. Now, the important takeaway from these verses is not that Jesus has the power to cast out demons, although that is good to know. Uh, but Jesus delivering this boy from the demon, it's just setting the stage. It's just the backdrop for this bigger lesson that Jesus wants us to learn from that passage. And that bigger lesson has to do with faith. Jesus uses this event to teach those that were there on that day and to teach each one of us in this room this morning and those that are watching online about a faith that moves mountains. In verse 19, the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And when the disciples asked this question, they're 100% sincere. They're wondering what happened? What went wrong? And I think the disciples recognize the displeasure of Jesus in verse 17. But they're a little mystified themselves why they were unable to cast out the demon out of this boy. So Jesus says to them in verse 20, because of your unbelief. For surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. We need to realize, we need to understand when Jesus refers to a faith that moves mountains, he's talking about a faith that accomplishes that which is humanly impossible. So when Jesus talks about a faith that can move mountains, a faith that each one of us can have, he's speaking figuratively. He's talking about a faith that results in the humanly impossible, something that only is possible for God uh, to do, right? That's what he's talking about. And I think we need to start our conversation this morning by asking, what is faith? We briefly looked at the definition of faith last week found in Hebrews 11.1. 1, and it says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And what the writer, to the, book, uh, uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying is that faith is living in the absolute confidence that what God has promised or what God has said in his word, God is going to do it, even if the fullness of that promise is not yet seen. You know, the Living Bible says it like this. It says, what is faith? It is the confident assurance that something we want of the promises of God is going to happen. It is the certainty that what we hope for is waiting for us, even though we cannot see it up ahead. Faith is believing something to be true because God has said it. Even when all of the circumstances try to rise up and stare God down in regards to his promises, so to speak. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, faith is a trust in God's word. It's a trust in his promises. When his word and promises are all we have to trust in, in the situation and the circumstances that we're facing. You know, it's not like we get a bill for $1,000 and all we have is $100 plus the promises of God 
uh, to provide for us. It's not like that. It's when we have absolutely nothing in the bank. And we, all we have is the promise that God is going to supply our needs. That's faith. And there are at least eight important aspects in these verses that I want us to look at in regards to a faith that can move mountains. First, notice in verse 20 that Jesus declares the single greatest enemy to faith is unbelief. And I think there's two kinds, two main forms, uh, you know, that unbelief takes in God's people. And I'm not talking now about people out in the world. I'm talking about God's people here and the unbelief that they can experience. First, there's the unbelief that occurs when a person doubts, uh, has doubts about God's ability in the situation. A Christian can find themselves in a situation, an impossible situation, a situation that requires a mountain to be moved. And if they're honest in their heart, right, what they doubt in the situation is that, man, is, is God even able to help? Is he able to change any of the things that I'm facing? And I think that's one kind of doubt in the life of a child of God. The problem is that they doubt the ability of God. And the problem with that kind of person at the very core of the issue, the problem is that that person doesn't know God very well. And the solution for not knowing God very well is for that person to continue to grow in the knowledge of God, right? There's no greater place in all of the world for uh, that person to continue to grow in their knowledge of God. There's no greater place in all the world for that person to continue in the knowledge of God than to grow in his knowledge of the word, right? To grow in the knowledge and understanding the Bible because the Bible is the single great revelation of God and his heart for mankind, his heart for you and me, his heart for the world. We looked at this verse last week, briefly, Romans 10, 17, which says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. Why does faith come by hearing the word of God? Because that's where you learn about God. You learn about God through his revelation of himself. You know, you can't trust something that you don't know. You can't trust someone that you don't know. And you know, there are times when a person is doubting the ability of God and a Christian will come to them and say, you know, you just got to trust God. Now, that's really good advice, but you can't stop there. You need to trust God, but the reason you don't trust him is because you don't know him very well, right? You need to turn to his word and let his word uh, fashion your heart, fashion your mind, fashion your soul, fashion your strength. And you need to grow in the knowledge of him. And as you do, as you come to know the Lord better, you're never again going to doubt his ability to move on your behalf in a difficult circumstance. The solution isn't to just have more faith because it's not something that is within me. It's not something that I can muster up. You know, I think that that's the way a lot of Christians think of faith. They think of it as some kind of self-existent, you know, independent thing, right? People often say, if you just have more faith, as if, you know, it's something that existed by itself. I mean, to me, it's almost like uh, telling a dyslexic kid who struggles with reading, hey, just try harder. It doesn't make any sense. Faith doesn't exist by itself out there someplace. Our faith is proportional to the degree that we know God. So we need to turn to the word of God and get to know him better so that our faith can grow. And I think it's very important if you're in that place this morning, not to be discouraged by it, right? If you're facing a situation that's humanly impossible and you're doubting God's ability to meet you in that situation, don't be discouraged by it this morning. And whatever you do, don't stop there this morning. Go to the word of God. 
Immerse yourself in it to discover all you can about God. You know, grow in your knowledge of the, of the word. Drink it in. Get to the point where you know God better than you know your trial. Better than you know that mountain that's right there before you that needs to be moved. The second form of unbelief in, in God's people, I think, occurs when God, uh, sorry, when people doubt God's willingness, right, to move. Some people doubt God's ability, while others doubt God's willingness, right, to help them in a difficult situation. They say something like, you know, I have no doubt that God can do it. You know, I just have trouble thinking that he's willing to do it for someone like me. And the solution for that person is the same. Man, turn to God's word. You need to find a promise in his word that addresses your situation. And then you hold on to that promise. You claim that promise for yourself. Hold on to that promise with the absolute confidence that God will keep that promise that he has made to you in his word. Even if it has to, even if he has to move mountains to keep that promise in your life, go to the word of God. Jesus said, Matthew 24, 35, concerning the word of God, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So you grab that promise and you hold on to it until God brings it to pass. Again, I think it's important to understand, you know, I'm perfectly free. We're perfectly free to ask God for whatever it is that we want to ask him for. Sometimes we can have a situation going on in our lives and God can do, you know, any one of five or ten different things in regards to dealing with that mountain in our life. Then I have the situation, uh, and if I have a situation in my life where God's word doesn't address the situation uh, specifically, there's no promise in the word that deals directly with the thing that I'm facing, you know, I can go to the Lord in prayer and say to him, Lord, Here's what I'd like to see you do in this situation. But I have to realize that's just one of 10, one of 100 different ways God can move in my situation. You know, I have to understand, I can go to God and say, I'd like you to do this, but I have to ask with a heart that's surrendered, right? To allowing him to deal with the situation however he wants to. Faith isn't backing God into a corner and forcing him to move. Faith isn't saying to God, this is what I want. And if I believe it hard enough, you have to do it for me. That's not faith. You know, faith is believing in a known promise of God that he's given in his word. So I say, Lord, this is what I'd like to see you do here in my situation. But I know you can do any number of things in my situation. I'd like to see you do this. But I submit to you knowing that you possess perfect wisdom, perfect power, and perfect love for me. Would you please do what you know to be right in my situation? And then you hold on to the known promise that God is working all things together for the good to those that love God, and a call to his purposes, Romans 8, 28. You're never going to go wrong trusting in or submitting to a God who has already died in order that you might be saved. <clears throat> you know, God has already proven his willingness and his ability to move in our lives, you know, to move in our lives in a mighty way. What we need to do is reject the enemy of faith, which is unbelief. We must never grow comfortable with a Christian life that is marked by unbelief. An unbelief in the ability of God or an unbelief in the willingness of God. And it's very easy to fall into and continue in that kind of, that kind of uh, Christian life. A life where we're doubting his ability, we're doubting his willingness to help us 
uh, in this humanly impossible situation, right? That kind of life is infinitely inferior to what God desires for each one of us, right? And if this is a description of you this morning, a doubting of God's willingness, God would encourage you to dig into the Word. Again, get to know Him better in the Word. Get to know His promises better so that you can live a life of confidence, a life of faith, where the circumstances, even the humanly impossible circumstances in your life are catching up to God's words. You know what? It's never the case where God's words are catching up to our circumstance. That's not the way it works out. It's always the case of our circumstances catching up to God's word. Well, let's take a look back at verse 17. Verse 17, Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how should or how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. The second thing we need to learn from uh, about faith in this verse is that, a, that a, the lack of faith in a child of God who should know better is a source of frustration for Jesus, right? It clearly displeases him. Jesus is rebuking the disciples here. And he's not just rebuking the disciples. And, and we know that because he uses this term generation in the verse. He's rebuking also this larger group of Jews that are, that are there. But we cannot overlook the fact, the very definite fact, that he's rebuking the disciples here for their lack of faith in this situation. And he's rebuking them for being faithless, number one. And secondly, for their faith being perverse, right? He declares them to be faithless and he rebukes them for that lack of faith. For lacking faith in the light of what they already know about him. And the long history of miracles and, and his faithfulness in their lives already up to this point. So the failure of the disciples again, was completely unwarranted, right? They should have never lacked faith in the power of God in regards to the situation, given the fact that they've been walking with Jesus and they have this long history with Jesus. Not to mention that earlier in their ministry, Jesus gave them the power to cast out demons in his name. Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 10, 1 says, and when he had called uh, his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power of over unclean spirits to cast them out. And they already had a history of success doing this, right? Mark chapter 6 is the record of their success of casting out demons. So this isn't the first case of demon possession the disciples have, have come across. And it's not like they don't know the promises of Jesus in regards to their life and ministry when they've encountered this case. Uh, they knew his promises. They had a history uh, with Jesus, right? And they had already experienced him being faithful to keep his promises, which he had given them. And then Jesus, he calls them perverse. And when Jesus uh, calls their faith perverse. The word perverse, it just simply means to be twisted, to be warped, or to be distorted. Uh, it carries with it the idea of something that starts out right, but somehow it just gets twisted. And it makes it you know, a little bit off, makes it a little bit wrong. So Jesus is rebuking the disciples for allowing their faith to be twisted or distorted by unbelief when it was unnecessary in regards to the situation, right? In all of this, their unbelief is a great burden to Jesus. So he rebukes them. Now, you don't want to get the idea that Jesus is saying, okay, that's it, I'm done with you guys. I'm going to start looking for 12 more to replace you. That's not what's going on here, right? But Jesus is very frustrated by their failure to walk by faith. Their failure to remember their long history that they have with him and their failure to remember 
all that they know about him because of that history and all that they have experienced uh, up to this point in time in their walk with the Lord. So what you have here is you have Christians who are living below their knowledge of God in terms of faith, right? They're living even below their history with God because of their unbelief. And if I may be candid with you, you know, that's something that's actually easy for us to slip into as believers, right? I'm just as tempted as anybody else to fall prey to that. And I need the rebuke of God. Gary, what are you doing in this situation? You know, just bellyache and moaning and crying. I mean, like you have no history with God. You're living way below what you know about God. You know, what are you doing, Gary? I need that rebuke. I need the loving reminder of God to keep me where I'm supposed to be, right? So that's the rebuke. And I think that any of us that owns a Bible, you know, uh, that has been walking with God for any length of time, Jesus comes in and says, there's no reason for unbelief in your life. Every one of us has reason enough for faith. We must not live lives as Christians like we don't have a past history with God. You know, a past history of him doing the miraculous in our lives, a past history of uninterrupted, unfailing faithfulness in our lives. To forget all of that when we hit, you know, uh, these mountains that we find in our lives, simply unacceptable as believers. We must realize that what Jesus has always been in our lives, he will be in this situation too. He's faithful. And while that mountain is getting moved, I need to walk by faith in his promises. And in my knowledge of him, while I'm going through this situation, you know, this is a very important rebuke for each of us. It's a needed rebuke because you know, it wakes us up to the fact of how important faith is to Jesus. I mean, read verse 17 again. Oh, faithless and perverse generation. I mean, it's pretty startling to hear Jesus say that, right? But it's intended to wake us up and startle our spirit in a good way. Each of us are capable of living a life week after week, month after month, year after year, that's way below our knowledge of God, way below our past experience with God, way below a life that is honoring to God. And this rebuke is intended to wake us up. And honestly, I love the strength of it. I mean, I think that part of the strength of Jesus' rebuke in verse 17 prompts the disciples to ask the questions that they ask in verse 19. Why could we not cast it out? I mean, they realized that something that something had happened that wasn't right. They realized that they were living a life way below what Jesus had for them in terms of faith. And, and that life is a life of confidence. That's what he has for us. And they're basically saying, okay, we hear you, Jesus. We understand what it is that you're saying to us. Now tell us, how did we fail in the situation? Nothing is a total loss if we learn something from it. I find that often I learn something about faith as a part of some failure of faith on my part. You know, so the rebuke gets my attention and I say, I don't want to go through that again. So Lord, what happened? What is it that I need to learn from this situation? Anything like this, any rebuke or failure like this is good if it startles us out of a faithless uh, living. The third point we want to learn from this passage is a faith that moves mountains is a faith that has God as its object. And we touched about on this a little bit uh, earlier 
Faith is as only as good as what I place my faith in. You know, I could bring some rickety old stool uh, up here to sit on, and I could have all the faith in the world that it would support my weight uh, without breaking and collapsing under me. I could have all the faith in the world, but if that stool is rickety, you know, it's held together by baling wire and chewing gum and the legs are all loose, right? It's not worthy of my faith. It's going to let me down, literally. It's going to let me down, right? I could go out today and buy a Chevy Vega. If you're a Vega fan, you know, I mean no offense. I mean, but do you remember those cars, the Chevrolet Vega? I mean, I could have all the faith in the world that the Chevy Vega that, you know, I'm about to buy, which already has a couple hundred miles on it, and I could have all the faith in the world that it's good for another couple hundred miles, 100,000 miles. That's a slip. That's probably the truth. I mean, when was the last time you saw a Chevrolet Vega on the road? I mean, uh, it doesn't matter how much faith I have that I put in that car. It's not worthy of my faith. That car is going to break down shortly after I, buy after I buy it. That's just the way it is. My faith isn't going to change that fact. That car is a piece of junk. And again, if you're a Vega owner, I mean no offense. So again, faith isn't some independent, self-existent, ethereal thing that's out there someplace. But faith is only as good as what I place it in. And today, you know, there's so much faith teaching out there, and it's gained a lot of popularity in the church. If you just have enough faith, you know, Faith can get you whatever you want. If you just have enough faith, as if faith is the most important thing of all. But it's not the most important thing. The most important thing about faith is who I'm placing my faith in. No amount of so-called faith can make something that's not worthy of my faith suddenly worthy of my faith. The wonderful thing for us as Christians, because of Jesus, is we have the privilege of placing our faith in regards to our daily lives and uh, even our eternity. But we have the privilege of putting our faith in a God that's all-powerful, a God that's perfect in wisdom, perfect in his power, perfect in his love. He's the object of our faith. And as we put our faith in the greatness of the God of the Bible, we can then rest in our faith in him. I mean, you cannot place your faith in anything greater than him, knowing that he's never going to disappoint you. He's never going to fail you. He's never going to let you down. It can appear, though, I admit, it can appear in the midst of a heavy, heavy trial that God's promises are going to come up short, uh, that your situation, my situation, this is the way I can see it sometimes, my situation is going to result in the first time that God uh, has ever let somebody down. You know, and it can seem that way in the heat of the trial. But when it's all over, when the whole thing's unfolded and you come to the end of that trial and you have an opportunity to look back over that trial, maybe after a few months, maybe after a few years, you know what? I've never known anyone who's walking closely with the Lord to look back over a trial in their life and say, you know, I was really disappointed with what the Lord did there. You know what? The Bible teaches us that we will never be disappointed with what the Lord wants to accomplish in our lives. You know, this side of heaven, we may not understand what the Lord is doing, but when we get to heaven, I guarantee you, when you look at that trial uh, from a heavenly perspective, you're going to praise him. You're going to thank him. You're going to worship him for what he allowed in your life in order to shape you into the image of his son. The fourth thing, another thing we want to learn about faith is a faith that moves mountains is a faith that is based upon God's word and his promises. Again, Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. As Christians, we can have the absolute confidence that God's word is going to have the final say in any and every situation of our lives. Even if it means that God has to move mountains, multiple mountains to make it happen. Nothing, 
No human circumstance, no demonic oppression, no nothing is going to prove God to be unfaithful to a single promise found in his word. Again, as I mentioned before, when we're faced with the humanly impossible in our lives, the first thing that we need to do is turn to the word of God. Find a promise in his word that's directed to his children in that situation. And then just cling tight to that promise. And if it means you have to write it down on a, a three by five card, and you know what, you, you paste it all over every single mirror in the house. You know, you put it on the refrigerator. You got them all over your cupboards. You got them on the dashboard in your car. You got on the rear view mirror of your car. Every place you set your eyes, if that's what it takes to be reminded of the promise, then that's what you do. You do it. When we hit a situation and we say to ourselves, man, this is going to be the death of me. I'm not going to make it through this trial. In this situation, I'm completely powerless. I can't change the situation that I'm in any more than I can move, you know, uh, any one of the mountains around us, even a fraction of an inch, right? When you're faced with a situation like that, here's the first thing you do. You turn immediately to the word of God. And if you need help to find a promise for what it is that you're facing, a promise that applies to your circumstance, now let's get together, let's talk it over, right? But you turn to the word of God and you ask God, give me one, two, three promises that that you've given to your people in these circumstances. And then you hold on to that promise with the absolute confidence that God will keep that promise that he has made in his word. The fifth thing that we want to learn about faith is found in verse 20. A faith that moves mountains doesn't have to be very big. I mean, uh, that might actually surprise you. I think it surprises me. Right? Jesus said, For as surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. The mustard seed was the smallest of all the herbs grown in Israel at this time. Right? When you have a powerful God, when you have a God who's almighty, you don't need a lot of faith. You know what? When you have a God as big as our God, and just a little bit of faith. That's a powerful combination right there, right? Our God is so big, we don't have to bring a lot of faith to him, right? Or to his word, or to the situation. Just a little bit of faith in an all-powerful, almighty God unleashes infinite possibilities. And we need to receive that truth today. And we need to be encouraged by it today, right? This is what I think happens to people, including myself. When we hear about mountain-moving faith, and it doesn't have to be mountain-moving faith. It could just, you know, be faith in general. Faith that changes a circumstance. Faith that accomplishes this or faith that accomplishes that. This is what I think happens when we hear of faith. And, and again, myself included, I often convince myself that kind of faith is, a, is at least a little bigger than the faith that I have, right? So I spend my whole Christian life believing that I'm lacking just that little bit of faith. You know, I'm just a little bit of faith away from experiencing the supernatural Christian life that's described in the Bible. And we need to be very careful not to do that, not to believe that, right? We can think, you know, I'm such a failure as a Christian. You know, I fall so short in the area of faith that's needed to experience uh, all that God has for me in this Christian life. And the fact is, is that's not true. It doesn't take much faith, right? It only takes a tiny little bit of faith, just a mustard seed of, size of faith. The faith that we already have in this big God of ours, if you're willing to wait on him, and allow him the time to prove his faithfulness in our lives. That's enough faith to see mountains move. 
The sixth thing we want to notice about faith, right, is also found in verse 20. And that is that the faith that will move mountains must be a living faith. Right? It needs to be an active faith. You want to notice when Jesus is comparing faith to the mustard seed, he wasn't just talking about the size, although, again, I think that that's part of it. Jesus didn't say in verse 20, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, he said, if you have faith as a mustard seed. What he's saying is your faith doesn't have to be great. It doesn't have to be big. It can be small. Even if it's the size of a mustard seed, that's enough. But the thing about a mustard seed is it's alive, right? It's living. Your faith can be very small, but it has to be alive, right? It has to be active. We need to be willing to take the seed of faith and plant it in our situation and then sit back and watch God uh, grow something from that faith right, out of the situation that we're in. Jesus is not only speaking about the quantity of our faith, it can be very small, but he's also speaking about the quality of our faith. Our faith needs to be alive. It needs to be active. And again, I think it's very inter uh, very easy for us as Christians, especially if you've been walking with the Lord for, you know, a few years, many years. I believe we need to allow the Holy Spirit this morning to, to speak to our hearts in regard to this point here. We need to ask ourselves, when was the last time that I exercised active faith in some uh, given situation? When was the last time I introduced a living faith from my living relationship with God into a particular uh, situation? I see the circumstances like Goliath standing right before me. I see, you know, all the armor. I see all the weapons, right? And I can clearly see he's 10 feet tall. And I know everything there is to know about the impossibility of me facing this giant, right? And I know in my own strength and in my own wisdom, there's absolutely nothing that I can do, right? But I'm not going to accept that as my forever reality, right? I'm going to turn to the word of God and I'm going to grab hold of the promise that he has for me. And I'm going to bring that promise up against the reality of that giant, against the impossibility of that situation. If we're not careful as believers, it's so easy for us, you know, especially after a period of time of walking with the Lord, to begin to live a C minus, a D plus, even a D minus Christian life and be content with that. You know, it's so very easy to fall prey to a life that ceases to exercise active faith in the circumstance that we face. In verse 20, when Jesus speaks of faith as a mustard seed, it's intended to be an encouragement to us, right? It's intended to be an exhortation to us. It's to exhort us to action, right? Where we might say, Lord, because I'm seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness, because I'm actively involved materially and financially in the expansion of your kingdom, I place my active living trust in you. And I'm going to trust you to supply all the physical needs for me and for my family. That's an act of faith. Or somebody may say, Lord, your word declares that you number my days. So I choose to take my act of faith as an act of my will. And I choose to trust in that great truth in face of the medical diagnosis that I've just been given. Or somebody may say, Lord, your word declares that you'll never call me to do something unless uh, you're going to give me the power to do it. And now you've called me to take this step of faith in my service to you? Lord, you know what? I've never done anything like that before. You know that. And you know that if you don't show up, I'm going to fall flat on my face. But Lord, I'm going to, uh, as an act of faith, choose to believe what your word says. And that is, 
with your calling comes your enabling. So I'm going to apply active living faith to this situation because that's where I want to live. That's where I find myself, actually. That example is me almost every single week, tell you the truth, honestly. Somebody may say, Lord, your word declares that perfect love casts out all fear. So instead of worrying and living in fear, I actively choose to set my mind on the greatness of your love. Right? I look to my future with great confidence, and I'm going to trust in you. That's an active faith. That's a living faith. It isn't enough just to know these things about God or to know all the promises found in the Bible, although that's a good place to start. But it's an act of faith that applies the things we know about God and the promises found in his word to our lives and to the situations that we face. And we need to apply that act of faith minute by minute, day by day, situation by situation, so that we live a quality of life that is honoring to a faithful God a supernatural, all-powerful God. That's the God that we serve. Well, in response to the questions the disciples asked regarding why they couldn't cast out the demon, Jesus adds um, to his comments, verse 21, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Jesus is declaring here, point number seven, Jesus is declaring here that sometimes our faith needs to be expressed through prayer and fasting, right? The disciples had come up against a demon here, and the Bible clearly teaches uh, Ephesians chapter 6 that there are different rankings of demons. You know, they have different levels of authority, different uh, levels of power. And the disciples come up against this demon here that was more powerful than, you know, the, the regular low-level private kind of demon or the mid-level, you know, sergeant, lieutenant-ranked uh, demon right? And what they needed to do was express their faith in prayer and fasting in order to cast that demon out, Jesus says. You know, prayer and fasting is an expression of faith because we engage in it prior to the need, right? We're trusting the Lord that he will prepare us and strengthen us and equip us spiritually through prayer and fasting for an impossible situation that will come into our life. And that brings me to my final point this morning, number eight, and that is to exercise faith uh, that is going to move uh, mountains means that as Christians, we will find ourselves uh, in a never-ending series of impossible situations. Doesn't I just encourage you? Woohoo! All right! You know? We'll never be known as men and women of faith. We'll never know the blessings that come along with living a life of faith unless we're placed in a situation that requires faith. Right? To walk by faith, to discover the greatness of our Lord. It means that we're going to be continually placed in a situation that is humanly impossible, one right after another. You know, and I think that this is very important to understand because there's a teaching out there that says, if you have enough faith, you can escape all the hardships. You know, if we could escape the hardships of life, we wouldn't need faith. We need faith because there are uh, hardships and difficulties that we face in life, right? Look at Jesus. He possessed absolute and total faith in God. I mean, he had perfect faith in the promises of the Father. And yet Jesus begins this chapter, Matthew 17, and the following verses after the section we're looking at this morning, right? He tells his disciples that he's going to be crucified in Jerusalem. Faith doesn't mean that we'll never uh, suffer. It just means that we'll face it in a different way and in a different quality of life than anybody else in the world, right? If you look at the apostles, every one of them except John is going to die a martyr's death, not because they lacked faith, but because they had faith, right? Daniel had faith, ended up in the lion's den. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, they were cast into the great fiery furnace. Why? Because they had tremendous faith in God. You know, it all points to the fact that faith can actually produce hardships in our life. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 16, 9. He says, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Faith and hardship is the way things work. They, they, they work together. To walk or to live by faith, it means that we'll constantly be facing, uh, facing situations that require faith. We'll face uh, humanly impossible situations as we obey God's word. You know, as we obey his calling on our lives, there will always be a sense that, God, if you don't show up and move in the situation, I'm through here. I'm as good as dead. You know, so don't think, you know, that you're the odd man out because you feel that way today. Or even if you feel that way on a regular basis, that's part of the Christian life. And again, if the situation was humanly possible, we wouldn't need faith. And we need to understand, we don't exercise faith in the difficulties that we face in order to escape them, but in order that our lives mark, might be marked by a great confidence in God in any given situation while we're trusting God to work sovereignly in the situation for his glory and for our good which is exactly what he promises to always do. Again, Romans 8, 28. And he works all things together for our good. So as Christians, it's important to Jesus that we exercise a living, active faith in our life. And when faced with the humanly impossible, let's immediately just turn and run to the Bible and find a promise of his that applies to our situation. And then let's steadfastly, you know, doggedly hold on to that promise uh, and the fact that God's promise will have the final say in every, in any situation that we find ourselves in. You know, my life is never going to disprove. Your life is never going to disprove or invalidate, you know, a single promise of God. He's faithful to his word and he's faithful to each one of us. And then let's watch God move mountains if it's necessary in order to prove that, that uh, his promises are true in our lives and circumstances. You know, if you're here today and you're, uh, not a believer, you're watching online and you're not a believer, you might be tempted to think after this study, man, if being a Christian results in so much difficulties, then maybe, you know, it's better, I'm better off not giving my life to Christ. But that's not the case. There is no better life than a life walking with Jesus, walking in faith. Everyone faces difficulties, believer and unbeliever alike. I mean, you know, you'll face hard, uh, hard times. You'll face difficult situations and circumstances if you're not a believer. The difference is you're going to face it alone, right? Without any help from an almighty God who's willing to show himself strong, willing to move mountains on your behalf. And if after a lifetime of facing difficulties and hardships all on your own, you continue to reject God's love and free gift of salvation, when you die, you'll never enjoy his presence. You'll never enjoy his peace. But you'll stand before him and face him in his wrath and in his judgment. My encouragement to you, if you're not a believer in Christ today, is give your life to Christ. Repent which just means turn from your sins and turn to God. Man, I was going this way, but now I'm just going to turn around and go that way and run to God and receive the forgiveness that he offers in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so thankful for your word this morning. And I'm so thankful for the encouragement that your word brings, the straightforwardness, the clearness that your word uh, brings to us, Lord. And God, as we see 
uh, how important faith is to you. And as we read in Hebrews that without faith, it's impossible to please you. Lord, help us catch the truth this morning. Help us hear your voice this morning and apply these things to our lives that we might grow in faith and be the men and women you want us to be, to live the life of confidence you want us to live. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.